All right. As I said, it's good to be here uh, with you guys. It's it's such a, a, a pleasure and, and an honor to uh, to be able to to preach God's word to you, um, and particularly as it pertains to uh, the com- to when we commemorate the death of Jesus. Um, that's what Holy Week is. You know, on Thursday we you typically commemorate the the washing of the feet of the disciples and and the Lord's Supper, and then Friday today uh, we come together to commemorate His death. So uh, it, it truly is uh, an awesome topic, and I don't use that word lightly, okay? So uh, I, I was recommended a sermon because I say awesome a lot. Somebody at church had recommended a sermon to me, and the, uh, the, the final point was don't use the word awesome un- unless, unless it is uh, about the persons of God or his works. That is truly the only thing that is awesome. So awesome just to give you a quick definition of this, uh, means something that is exceedingly impressive or daunting. Daunting, I thought that was an interesting word. That's incredibly difficult or, or hard to comprehend. Something that inspires great admiration and apprehension, uh, and even something that uh, causes fear itself. Uh, and all, all of those are uh, all the, the, the full spectrum, if Logan's not here, but the full spectrum of the definition. Uh, is encapsulated in in this uh, when we're talking about the crucifixion of Christ. And one of the difficulties is in picking something to preach on a Good Friday. There are so many things, right? We just got done reading the two readings. Like we could do, we could do the trial. We could do pilot. We could focus on so many different aspects. But this year, this year, I wanted to uh, look at the moment of death, the moment of death of Christ. And we're going to be looking out of the uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter twenty seven. And it's going to be verses 45 through 56. So let's, uh, let's pray. And then I would like to build into our reading today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Christ Jesus and Holy Spirit, God, we, we come before you today and we ask you for illumination, Lord. I, I, I pray, God, that, that, uh, that Christ would be glorified tonight uh, through the preaching of the word. Lord, I pray that you would move me out of the way and that you would speak to the hearts of your people, God, that we would walk away glorying in you, that we would walk away thinking of you, that we would walk away speaking of you, Lord. Uh, you are our central God, not just this day, not just Good Friday, Lord, but every day. Uh, I pray that you would meet with us here and that you would help us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. So uh, the very beginning of Matthew, uh, of Matthew chapter 27 begins with the morning of Good Friday. And we know uh, that uh, the previous evening, evening, uh, Jesus had been betrayed by Judas, right? So here we are. We find ourselves the following morning, which would have been about 6 a.m., 6 a.m. So um, we kind of know where we're at on the timeline. Uh, So Jesus was immediately taken in the morning to go to Pilate, where he had his first hearing. He was found innocent, right? They had the famous exchange. He was found innocent. I find no guilt in this man. And he's then sent to Herod. He sent to Herod. Herod t- uh, tries him and finds that he's done no crime, that he's innocent. So he's sent back to Pilate, where there is commotion over what's going to happen with him. Pilate washes his hands and turns him over to be then crucified. He's beaten and scourged. He's then marched out to Golgotha, right? And he uh, unable. He's beaten so badly to the point where he can't carry on. They. That's when they bring in Simon the Cyrene who then takes his cross for him. He's then laid on the cross, nailed to it, and then lifted up. And that's where our text uh, comes in. So it says, uh, let's go ahead and read 45 through 56. Matthew 27, 45 through 56. 
Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the lands until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran, taking a sponge. He filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave, them a drink, gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tomb, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, the, uh, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the son of God. Many women, who were, many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed him or had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So the first thing that we're going to notice here is we're going to notice uh, that there, uh, the, the timeline that he lays out and an event is beginning to take place. He is put on, so from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, uh, just to give you an idea how the Jews did time. So days were broken into two 12-hour periods. There was daytime and there was nighttime. And the hour began when the sun was visible. That's when the first hour began. What's up, Blaine? Uh, and the same is true for the nighttime. So when we're talking about uh, first thing in the morning, Jesus was taken to Pilate. We know that was about 6 a.m. because that's around the time that the sun rises, that's around the time of Passover. Okay. We know from Mark chapter 15 that Jesus was crucified at the third hour, which would make it nine o'clock. The first hour is six. Three, at the third hour would be three hours later. Well, here Jesus has been on the cross for three hours at this point. Right. And at, starting from noon until three is when darkness falls over the entire land. OK, so we kind of know where we're at now. Um, the first three hours, fairly uneventful. And now we have this this supernatural event where seemingly the entire earth goes dark. And uh, that is that is something that's that's very, very uh, important because nature and we're going to see this more and more than just this place. We're going to see it a little bit later on with the, the temple, with the, with the veil tearing in two. And then we have the rocks splitting. Creation itself is responding to the suffering of Christ. In a way, it is as if nature itself, God's creation, is bending its knee towards the Savior, sympathizing with his pain almost. And I'm, I would like to, to demonstrate that uh, to you. So... What was the darkness? What was this episode that caused the darkness? Well, we have episodes or, or, or instances in the world today where the sun will go seemingly dark, and that's usually an eclipse, right? Well, it's impossible that this could have been an eclipse, and here's why. So during the time of the Passover, they always celebrated Passover with the full moon. And with the full moon, for the, the space nerds, it's when the moon is on the other side of the planet and the sun is on the opposite side of the planet. There could have been no, there could have been no uh, solar eclipse. And even if it was miraculously a solar eclipse, solar eclipses last for seven and a half minutes. The sun's fully eclipsed for seven and a half minutes, not three hours, as we're seeing right here. So that rules out a, a natural explanation of, of what caused the darkness to fall upon the land. Now, was it localized or was it the entire world? 
the the language seems to demonstrate that it was the entire world that went dark. Um, but we do know this is the one thing that we do know is that it was dark in Rome because there was a pagan astronomer by the name of Phlegon. Phlegon of Tales was his name. And he wrote during the 14th year of uh, Tiberius Caesar, who just so happened to be the emperor when Christ was crucified. The world went dark. It was completely dark here. And it was so dark that we could see the stars in the sky. That's how dark it was for, for this long period of time. And he also comments on an earthquake, which we'll get to a little later. But at any rate, this was a supernatural darkness that fell uh, upon the land. <clears throat> and what's happening here is the stage is being set for the darkest time of Jesus's existence in the flesh. Of his time in the flesh, this is now, we're now entering the darkest time. So what I want to do is um, I'm going to go ahead and read, um, I'm going to read uh, the uh, verse 45 and 46. So from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour is when Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um. Jesus utters this very, very famous phrase, and it's it's astonishing just how misunderstood this uh, this question that Jesus asks while he's on the cross is. You know, because it seems it can seem kind of weird. Like he he goes from calling him Father, then now he's calling him my God. And why have you forsaken me? When we know that Christ is the second person of the Trinity, right? He and the Father are inseparable. He can't be truly forsaken. So why is he saying this? Well, we know that this is the opening words from Psalm 22. And what I want to do is if we can turn to Psalm 22, I'd like to take a look at Psalm 22 to see what that says about this. Grab my water. Okay, so Psalm 22 is is uh, absolutely no question about it, a messianic psalm. It is about Jesus Christ. Um, David was experiencing uh, the things that are going on in this psalm, but it finds its fullest realization in Christ on the cross. So, um, and it really is, it's, 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 a, it's a psalm of lament. I mean, there is some real struggling taking place here, and it really rivals Job. Uh, if you go into Job, although Job was an unrighteous, uh, unrighteous lamentation, here we have David, who it finds its fullest expression in Christ, and it's a righteous lament, lamentation. And that, that really deserves its own sermon. But uh, I thought that that was an interesting point. So um, it, it contains all the elements uh, that we see on the account of Christ's crucifixion. He's mocked and sneered at in verses 6 and 7. Uh, he is surrounded by beasts and enemies of God that will rip him apart. That's verses 12 and 16. It even has the piercing of his hands and of his feet, which is verse 16. That never happened to David. And his garments are divided and lots are cast for them. That's in verse 18. This was written a long time before Christ was ever uh, on the earth. And I think one of the things that, that, that happens in the church today, just in general, is it focuses so much on the physical sufferings of Christ, which were horrible, right? Last year, we had talked about the, the, the cat of nine tails and the, the shards of, of glass and the rocks that were tied to the leather and, you know, the ripping of the flesh and all of these horrible, horrible things. But that was not truly the worst of Christ's suffering, not even close to what was actually taking place. And I'm going to do my best uh, to try to uh, try to, to show you that today. So um, 
what I want to focus on is the is the internal suffering. And I think that that's most easily seen in verses 14 and 15. I'm going to read those. He says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. There is this sense that something is happening to the Lord Jesus. He's not simply reciting the words of Psalm 22. He doesn't just, he doesn't just have a moment of, of theological clarity or, or this where he remembers the words that, that are in the Old Testament. He is actually reciting, he's actually experiencing the horrors of Psalm 22. Right. So um, notice the question. Right. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me back in Matthew compared to the statement that we read here in verse 15? Uh, Let me get there. And you lay me in the dust of death. We understand that Christ. You, my God, my God, the the one that I've only ever had perfect communion with. You, my God, the only one that I have ever, that I have ever been pleasing to. Why have you done this to me? Why are you doing this to me? That's really the nature of of, of the language. The the way, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is used is what is this that you have done to me? My God, that's how he's asking it. And notice that it's being done to him. It is being done to him. Christ goes willingly to the cross, but there is something that's actually happening here. He's being cursed. He's cursed. Uh, cursed is a man who hangs from a tree. He is abandoned. He's completely alone on the cross. And he was surrounded by enemies. And think about this, guys. I mean, this is, this is insane. He was loaded down with every single sin that all of his people ever committed, past, present, and future was laid on him on the cross. Everything at one time. Do you realize for just a fraction just a fraction of those sins, God had rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. For just a fraction of the sins that Christ is is holding in his, not in his being, but is is bearing for the for the weight the weight of the sins of his people, God flooded the entire earth and killed every single human being for just a fraction of the sin that's being that's being laid on Christ at this moment in time. This is a significant moment where all of God's wrath, his righteous wrath, is being poured out upon one man's head that is greater than the flooding of the entire earth and of fire and brimstone raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a tremendous moment. No wonder his heart is melting like wax within him. He has, no, he has nothing. He's completely by himself. There is no one to help him uh, bear this weight. So this gives the idea as this gives the idea um, um, as poor as human language can describe to the weight that the Savior is carrying on the cross, and um, Christ goes willingly, but the strokes were happening to him. Right, there was an axe being swung, and who was it being swung by? It wasn't by man ultimately; it was by the Father. We read in Isaiah fifty-three ten that it pleased Yahweh to crush him putting him to grief. Let's shift back to my God, my God. Let's, let's go uh, back to Matthew chapter 27. It's not as if in this statement, there was love lost between the father and the son. 
right? Jesus is not saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me ignorantly? And he's not saying it uh, angrily. He's not, he's not angry at the father for why this is taking place. It is, it is a, a reaction to the great suffering that he's, I, I don't, I don't even know that he knew that it was going to be as bad as it was. I mean, it, it, it's, it's almost like he's, it's like a, a comment of despair. He, it's just so deep uh, within him that he, that he, he shouts this out. What is this that you have done to me, Father? Well, we know the answer to that question. The greatest good that could ever be done is found in the most heinous of acts on the perfect man. This is the greatest good. Let's think about uh, Christ was made a sin offering. That's what he was. He became sin on the cross for us, right? He was made a sin offering and uh, he received the strokes that were due to us. He was bearing the penalty for the sin that was due to his people. And it's by those stripes that we're healed. It's by those stripes that we come together as a church and we worship the Lord Jesus Christ together. We can come and we can do that with love and affection for him because of the, this great good that took place on Good Friday. And I've always, I've always been, um, I've always been uh, um, surprised at the fact that they call it Good Friday. Why do they call it good, right? We're sitting here and we're talking about this turmoil, this inner turmoil of, of, of the savior of the world. And we, and we somehow we call it good. And we'll, we'll get to that here, here in, in a little bit. Uh, but these words that we just read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are not the last words that Jesus ever spoke. They're close to the last words that Jesus ever spoke, but they're not the last words that Jesus ever spoke. So what I want to do is uh, I, want, I want to go ahead and, and move on. Let's, let's look at verses 47 and 48. It says, and some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. So we know from John chapter 19, verse 28, that the Lord announced that he thirsts there. It's not like this guy would just recognize that Jesus was thirsty. Jesus actually says, I thirst. And this man goes and, and takes a sponge, he takes a sponge and he dips it in, um, in it's vinegar mixed with a, a very light wine and they put a little bit of water in it. It's, that was the common drink for Roman soldiers in these days. So he soaks that up and he puts it on a reed. Well, we also know from the book of John that it was on a hyssop. The, the, the hyssop was a, was a shrub or, or, a, or a bush. And in the middle of it is a stalk. It was all cleared off. He puts the sponge on the end and he gives Jesus a drink. But the people that are watching can't even let, this is obviously Jesus's last moments. And the people that are watching can't let this go without mocking him even further. And they misunderstand what he's saying, right? So he says, you know, uh, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli is the name of God. This is, he's speaking in Aramaic and they're thinking, oh, he must be talking about Elijah. I don't know how far off they're standing. They misunderstand him, but they know their Bibles, right? In Malachi chapter four, we know that Elijah is going to proceed the the coming messiah well they obviously weren't paying attention when christ had said that john the baptist has already come or must, the elijah elijah has already come in john the baptist so they mock him perhaps elijah will will come and, and will take him off of the cross right first they were saying let god save him and maybe maybe elijah will come maybe elijah will remove him from the cross and it's uh and it's to, just to understand like how far that misunderstanding is, is gone in, in a lot of uh, Orthodox Jewish families, they'll leave, they'll put an extra chair at the table and they leave it empty, right? 
they'll, they'll take the extra chair and leave it at the table. And that's where Elijah's going to sit, you know, when Elijah comes, you know, before, before the, the, the Messiah, they're still waiting on the, on the uh, economical and the sociological Messiah, the, the one that's going to come and make things right. Um, but here they are, um, they're, they're mocking him even further. So um, in verse 50, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He cried out with a loud voice and it wasn't just a scream, right? We get this from the other gospels. Uh, there's two things that he says in this moment before he surrenders his life. The first one is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the last words that he ever says before he yields up his spirit is, it is finished. And both of those two statements have monumental, a monumental theological implication on, on what exactly is taking place here. So when he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, he is demonstrating still. This, this goes to prove the point that I just made, right? The point that I just made was that there was no love lost between the Father and the Son. There wasn't this moment where they were disconnected. Christ still had the supreme amount of trust and faith in his Father. That even though he has suffered the worst thing that no other person on the planet will suffer, he still trusts his soul into the hands of his God. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful moment. And there's a, there's a, a famous sermon that I've, that I listened to. And, and he talks about, you know, when, when, uh, when we, when we come into the presence of the Lord and, and we're, and we're coming into the new heavens and the new earth every single day, is going to be a deeper understanding and a deeper revealing of the love that God had for us through Christ. And, and exactly what he did to us is going to be new every single day. We're going to, we're going to plumb and plumb and plumb the depths and we're never, ever, ever going to land on just the tremendous amount of love that Christ has for us and that he displayed through his suffering. But on the other end, for those who die apart from him. Each day of suffering will be worse and worse and worse, and they will never even come close to the kind of suffering that Christ suffered on the cross. Not even close. It's a debt that can't be paid. It's a terrifying, it's a terrifying um, um, uh, reality. But here we have Christ showing the, the, the trust that he has, the faith that he has in God. He's giving over his spirit to the Lord. And then he says, <laughs> It is finished. The wrath of God is satisfied. Full atonement had been made. Everything that was to fall on the heads of the people has fallen onto Christ, and it's over. It's over, and he receives Christ uh, into, into his glory. So the, the, the conditions of the new covenant are met, and um, the, the new covenant that was supposed to be enacted on better promises, right, this all comes to a head at this moment when Christ gives up his life and he turns it over to the hands of the father. He yields up his spirit. He resigns his life and he was gone. Christ was gone. And this brought a close to the centerpiece of eternity. This is the middle of all eternity. If you could, if you could factor that in, this is the, the divine intersection is what I call it in, in time where God's, perfect wrath meets his perfect justice poured out on the perfect man as the result of a perfect love to purchase a perfect salvation for an imperfect people. If we want to know the heart of the Lord, 
All of the debt was canceled that stood against us. With its legal demands, it was nailed to the cross that day, thereby making us perfect and holy and blameless in the sight of God. Then we have another series of wonders that comes after this, right? You'll notice in, uh, in verse, let's go to verse uh, 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. So the, holies of Hol- the Holy of Holies was, was then opened, right? It was opened because this is the, the nature that God, the, the relationship that God was going to have his people was changed forever. Prior to this, we had the veil. And it separated the people of God from him. There had to be a whole series of cleansings and and a special day of the year in order for one man, one man to go back there. And it's not like he went in there and hung out. He went in, did his thing, and he left immediately. It was completely exposed because all of God's people were going to have access to the Holy of Holies. This is a a huge, huge bit of symbolism for, for uh, for, for what happens here. Then there was an incredible earthquake which was, like I said before, also mentioned by Phlegon, right? The, the, the pagan. Um, there are some, uh, there are more commentators that believe that that earthquake on some level lasted all three days. Maybe not as intense it was to, to begin with, but, uh, and there, there is, there is some, uh, some evidence for that. But at any rate, the earthquake happens and the rocks split. Um, it also says that, that that tombs were opened, right? This is one of the weirdest passages that you get in all of Matthew, right? Because now we have this resurrection. Now, it's important to remember that the, that the people come out of their tombs after Christ is raised, right? So this lends itself because we're talking about that Christ is the first fruits from the grave. He's the first one to rise from the grave. But does that make sense? Because we think about in the Old Testament, there were people that were raised from the grave. There were people that came to life, right? But not eternal life. No one in the Old Testament was raised to eternal life. They died again. Christ coming up from the grave for eternal life. And once again, many of the commentators that I read, all of these people that came from the tombs came up from the tomb to eternal life. Um, and many of them deduce that they went up with the Lord in glory, you know, at the beginning of Acts. But uh, that, that, is, that is a very, very popular view. Um, I don't know if that's exactly what took place. I don't know if anybody knows. It doesn't say exactly what took place, but it's believed that they had, uh, that they had uh, uh, their, their bodies uh, fit for eternity. But here um, in, in this next verse, so we see the spiritual implications of the rocks splitting. I had told you earlier that creation responds, is, was responding to the Lord in his suffering, right? Now creation is responding to the Lord now that he's died. We see these physical, we, we see physical examples that are taking place on the earth that represent spiritual meaning, right? We have the veil torn. We can now go into the Holy of Holies. We can come before the Lord. Well, here, because God is creator, when he commands something, when he does something, nature responds, right? When the rocks split, that is, there is, is, it's no question when we look at the centurion in the very next verse, look at this. 
The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly, this was the son of God. This, this is the Christ. This is, he's everything that he said he was. And he, like those rocks, spiritually, were broken open. God's people, the one, those who belong to God, when God does something and when he says something, his people react. That's what happens when we hear the gospel, when we receive the gospel, right? The gospel is spoken, the, uh, the word of God goes forth, and those who belong to him cannot help but to react. We come to God. And we see this all over the creation account. We can go back through Job if we wanted to. And we can see that, that God, like, where were you when I set the boundaries for how far the sea would go? I said to the sea, you stop right here and you come no further. And it obeys. All creation, that which belongs to the Lord, obeys. And this really, guys, th- th- one of the questions that comes to mind here, what were the hard-hearted Jews, those who did not believe that he was the son, how... I get like, okay, he could have done the magic trick with the fish, right? He could have done a magic trick with the wine. There's, there, there has to be some explanation. There is no explanation for a guy who died 100, 200 years earlier coming out of the tomb. There is no explanation for this, the entire earth going dark and there being a three-day earthquake, right? What were these guys thinking? Like how... We can't even hear something on the radio without thinking it's a sign from God. But yet the sun go, the, the entire earth goes dark for three hours and they just keep on with their day. Like talk about suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Talk, talk about not being given eyes to see, right? But those who belong to God, everything is like, they have no choice but to respond. They have no choice but to fear. They have no choice but to question these things in light of the one true and living God and his people respond. They always respond. So here's the point. None of what we've preached about today has been good. Really. In and of itself, we don't have nothing that I've said today. This night has been good at all apart from the reality of the resurrection. And in Reformed churches, there's a criticism that goes out that we don't talk enough about the resurrection, that it's always focused on atonement, right? The, the, the place uh, uh, that, that Jesus takes, which, is meant, which should be for us, but he goes in between and he becomes the wrath bearer. He becomes the propitiation for our sins. And this is all of the gold of theology is found in, in the, the, the reality that Christ has suffered for us, right? So that we could be made right. But none of it matters if he, did, if he was not raised from the dead. None of it. It's a, it's a cool story if there's not an empty tomb. That's it. That's all there is. A, a, a veil in the temple being torn in two doesn't matter. A, a three-day earthquake doesn't matter. The sun going dark doesn't matter if he's not raised from the dead. It is... It is the, the most important part of the entire story is the resurrection. And, and I want to look at this moment in light of that. So if Christ is not raised from the dead, we're among, we are among men most to be pitied. Because there's nothing there. 
It's completely empty. It's the only thing that can make this Friday good. And we know this by how everybody reacted to Jesus's death. It's not like the apostles were saying in three days, guys, we just need to wait this thing out for three days and he's coming back. What did they do? They fled. They were in despair. What was the, what was the last three years all about? It didn't even mean anything. This guy that we gave three years of our life to, we followed him and we listened to everything that he said. And we, we, we watched all of these miracles. Even they didn't understand. Even there was hard heartedness there. Because what did they do? They went back to all the old stuff that they used to do. All the stuff, the, the, the empty cisterns, the, 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 the wells that cannot hold water, as we read in the book of Isaiah. They went back to things that were meaningless, things that were empty. They forgot everything and just kind of lost their way, right? It was all meaningless apart from the resurrection. It wasn't until the resurrection that there was hope. It wasn't until the resurrection and they, and they saw the risen Lord, they could barely even recognize him, right? That's when everything came into view. And that's how it is today. Um, we see in Isaiah 53 that I preached about last year in verse 10, it says something very, very specific. It says, he will see his offspring as the result of the anguish of his soul. He will see his offspring as the result of the anguish of his soul. He will see them and he will be satisfied. This poses a huge problem if Christ is not raised from the dead. Because dead men don't see. Dead men don't see. Ecclesiastes 9.5 actually says that the dead know nothing. How is it that the Messiah will see his offspring and rejoice? What makes Good Friday good instead of the worst Friday is the reality of the empty tomb. And the one who is laid down in it is now in his body, seated on the throne of heaven, at the right hand of power, where he rules and he reigns and he sees. He's doing what alive men do. They see. And he watches his children come to him by the preaching of the gospel and he rejoices. We don't serve a dead savior. We don't serve a dead God. He is very much alive, and he is rejoicing in us. You know, when we see him face to face at the end of all of this, and we come and we, we, are, be, we are seeing him face to face, and, and we're taking everything in, the reality of the resurrection, the reality of, of the crucifixion, uh, where we used to be, and we're crying tears. Some people are, are, will be coming into his presence, and the last thing that they experienced in their body was a horrible murder. They were martyred or whatever else. That moment, and me and Blaine talk about this in our, on our, when we sat down for coffee, it's I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just, the, the tears are never going to stop flowing. I'm just going to cry and I'm going to follow him everywhere he goes. And I'm going to be the most annoying saved person in heaven because I, I'm, I, the, the joy and the excitement and all of the things that we're going to have when we see him face to face. Do you realize that is going to pale in comparison? to the joy and the excitement that he has laying eyes on you face to face. It will pale in comparison to the joy 
and the satisfaction that he gets from seeing his people. Well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm just not, I'm not a very good Christian. I don't do all the things. I don't say all the things. I don't pray as I should. The first thing that we see when we see him is not going to be a scowl on his face. All of these things he did, he did for you and he did for me with a perfect love. We have to understand how God feels towards sin because every ounce of the wrath that was poured out on Christ is God's feeling towards sin. We put it to death. We keep our eyes forward on the prize because someday we will be given a crown, right? We will finish the race and we will behold the look of our savior. Let that spur us on for the rest of the year to living rightly before him, to seeking him in his word. What God could the world provide? What false idea of God could, be, could the world provide where he himself comes and suffers in our place to satisfy his own justice? I want you to think about that. No other God offers that. None. There isn't one except for the one true and living God and his Christ. He is risen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, God, with this somber, somber story and, and the somber music. But Lord, it is the cause of, of the most joy, Lord. Those who who were dead and far from you, those who who were seeking only the, the desires of the flesh, God, you you by by this this amazing moment that was the crucifixion and, and on to the resurrection, Lord, that you have drawn men to yourself, that you have given us life and that you've given us hope, and that you have given us a reason in this in this world that we see that is falling further and further and further from you, Lord, that you have given us purpose that you've given us work to do and that you promise us, Lord, you, you, in your word, you promise that at the end, Lord, that you will wipe every single tear from our eyes. God, we look forward to this day and we know that the only reason that we have a reason to look forward, God, is for the price that you paid for us. Praise Jesus Christ. Praise the Father. Praise the Holy Spirit that you would love. What is man that you would make notice of him, that you would even look upon us, Lord, and that you would have mercy. You are a glorious God. You are worthy of all praise and all honor, Lord. And let not one moment for the rest of our day, all the way till, till Easter and even beyond, Lord, not, let not one moment be apart from the rejoicing that we have through Christ and his work for us. We love you, God, and we praise you this night. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.